what I've been um, trying to do on these, the, just the very small number of Sunday evenings that I have been here is uh, open up some windows and, and give you some insight into uh, how my mind works and, and uh, how I think about ministry, how I think about the gospel, how I think about the life of the church. Um, several weeks ago, um, it's been, well, it's really been a couple of months or so ago now, uh, I encouraged us to, to look at the Lord's Prayer, and, and we walked through the Lord's uh, pattern prayer in Matthew 6, and um, my encouragement uh, to us then and, and my encouragement uh, to us now and the encouragement that you'll hear from me uh, in the months and years to come is that we seek to shape our praying as a congregation after um, that pattern prayer, the, the prayer that the Lord left us, a prayer that begins with uh, a recognition that God is our Father, uh, that he has drawn near to us. He is in heaven. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He possesses all power and authority. He is a king, and his kingdom has come, and it is coming, and we're encouraged to pray for the advance of that kingdom, and we just sort of work through all of those petitions. Um, and then just a, a few weeks ago, I had us look, uh, beginning in Exodus, at, uh, at what God has done uh, in in history to accomplish this work of redemption for us and just wanted to reaffirm for us the fact that the cross stands at the center of history and the cross stands at the center of who and what we are as a church um, i mean those you know those two things are non negotiable things for for me in ministry prayer and the cross the the the, the ministry of uh, intercession and, and supplication, all of those uh, words that we use to describe prayer and, and, and the cross. I mean, these things are central to who and what we are. There are a lot of important things um, that are secondary things. Uh, there are some things that are just not secondary. They're essential, and, and these are among them. And what I'd like to do tonight is look uh, at a passage that through the years has been um, especially important and helpful and, and meaningful to me as I, again, think about the ministry and I think about what it is that I'm doing and I think about what it is that we're about uh, as a church. And uh, it's a passage from, from Kings, First Kings, uh, chapter 18, verses 30 to 39. Um, and I'm going to read the passage in just a second, but let me just suggest to you that you try to think, if you can, think um, in, in sort of parallel universe form, uh, if you would. I mean, one, one universe is the universe uh, that uh, the prophet uh, Elijah found himself in, where there's a, a godless king uh, who is ruling with uh, alongside a wicked queen, and there are these false prophets that are just proliferating and running around all over the place. And Elijah comes to the conclusion, the mistaken conclusion, but based on what he sees, he's come to the conclusion that he's the only one left in Israel. Right? Now God, you know, reminds him that he's not the only one around; that there are other 
faithful people in Israel. But what is clear is that, uh, that, that Elijah's time was a time of, uh, uh, of real tragedy and sadness spiritually. Uh, the kingdom of God was not flourishing at the time of Elijah. Unbelief prevailed. Um, idolatry prevailed. Um, uh, false religions were proliferating. The, the worship of the Baals and, and the Ashtara, these uh, Canaanite uh, gods and goddesses that, uh, that Israel sadly had sort of co-opted into its own life and practice. Okay, that's one universe. The parallel universe is, is the universe we're living in. Now, I, I mean, I think we have a pretty good king. I, I think he's okay, and I think his wife, frankly, may even do better than him. I'm not sure. But, but, but the point at which the, the parallels uh, really do exist are, are especially at this, this point at which there is just the proliferation in our day of... Of and I, you know, I'm I'm not a sourpuss. I mean, I'm not a uh, whiner. Well, I I can be a whiner, but I'm I mean I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful because the king has come and the kingdom is here and the kingdom is advancing. But but really, as you look around in many many ways, these are tough times. Uh, there is the proliferation of lots and lots and lots of different anti-Christian, non-Christian. Worldviews, lots of different kinds of idolatry, lots of different kinds of unbelief. That's the kind of world we live in, and and it's, you know, it's a world not terribly unlike the world that Elijah lived in. Maybe not quite as bad, but but lots of parallels. And I, I, it's it's because of those similarities that this passage has been particularly instructive for me and helpful for me as I've thought about my own ministry and as I think about the ministry of this particular church in this particular place or the ministry of any church, really, uh, in this country at this particular point in history. So that's, if you will, that's just a little bit of a setting of the context for what happens here uh, in 1 Kings 18. So let me... Let me read beginning at verse 30, and then I've just got four. Um, I'm going to try to do this quickly. I've got four basic points to make, and I'm, uh, they're, gonna, they're kind of alliterated just to help you remember them, but I don't want the alliteration and the, the structure of things to obscure the significance of each of these things. Okay. Um, in other words, I don't, want the, I don't want the medium to get in the way of the message. Okay. Um, but, but four points, uh, I hope quickly, that, I'll, that I'd like to make. Verse 30, 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it out on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. 
And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. All right, now what in the world does 1 Kings 18 have to do with Indian River Presbyterian Church in Indian River County in the year 2006? Well, here, again, four things. And the first of them is this in verse 30. Let me suggest uh, this way to think about this. Uh, The first thing that we want um, as a church is to have regard for the prophetic office. Regard for the prophetic office. When Elijah stood as a prophet in the midst of Israel, he stood as a prophet who was entrusted with a message from God that was to be communicated to the people of God, to the nation. That's what prophets do. Prophets uh, are not prophets because they're cut out of a different piece of cloth from everybody else. Right? Prophets are men who are called by God from the nation to serve as conduits through whom the word of God, the truth of God, is conveyed to the people. And that's what Elijah was doing. Verse 30, Elijah says to all the people, come near to me. He he commands the people to come. He summons the people to come. Not because of who he is as Elijah, but because of what God has made him to be as a prophet. God is the one who called him. God is the one who set him apart. And God is the one who has given him this message, entrusted this message to him. Now, I think it's important for us to remember uh, it's, it, it's a very, I, I will tell you, it's a very humbling thing for me to try to remember this. Um, I struggle to remember it sometimes. Uh, when I do remember it, uh, I'm humbled by it. Um, I think it's a very important thing for us to remember what happens when somebody preaches. When the prophet stands in the midst of Israel to communicate the word of God, it's not his word. It's not his message. Uh, And he is not a prophet, again, because he's cut out of some different piece of material. There is a dynamic thing that happens when the prophet stands in the midst of Israel. Uh, And the dynamic is that it is God himself who is speaking. It is God himself who is imparting words of life and truth and hope and change to the people of that day. 
That's what God was doing in Elijah, through Elijah, when God, through Elijah, commanded the people to come. Okay? Um, this, this is a Presbyterian church. It is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. And the Presbyterian Church in America has these confessional statements, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. Uh, and these um, very wise guys, not wise guys, but wise guys, wise men who gathered uh, three and a half centuries ago to draft these uh, confessional statements, just their best attempt to capture the essence of the teaching of the scriptures, um, captured some of what it is that's going on uh, when Elijah speaks to the nation or when any prophet speaks, when any preacher seeks to communicate uh, the truth of God. There is a dynamic that's going on. And, and I want to share this with you. There are a couple of questions from the larger catechism that captures some of this. Questions 157 and 160. Um, actually, I want to read... Um, this is not my copy of this, so I've got to... I've got to find my, my place. Question 154, and I may have referred to this. I just don't remember um, on a previous Sunday. But question 154, listen to these words, uh, because these words begin to capture some of the dynamic uh, of what happens when God communicates his word through his prophet to his people. Okay? Question 154. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? Okay. I know that's technical language. The point is that Christ possesses something. Christ is the one who possesses all of the life and blessedness of heaven. Christ is the one who has secured forgiveness. Christ is the one who has secured cleansing. Christ is the one who has secured for us the assurance of our salvation. These are some of the things that are being referred to when, when the larger catechism talks about benefits. Um, but listen to the means. Christ is the one who possesses them. Listen to the means that are used by which Christ himself communicates these benefits to his people. Okay? the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all of his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. Christ possesses these things. But how do those things get communicated to you and me? The first in the list is the word, the word, the message that has been entrusted to the one who is to preach. Now, I, I don't know what that does for you 
as you think about a Sunday morning service of worship, as you think about gathering together on a Sunday evening, for me, it increases my sense of expectation. When, when we come together as the people of God, understanding that Christ is our King at the right hand of the Father, that He possesses these benefits, He has appointed particular means by which those benefits get communicated to us. And one of those means is His Word. Through the preaching of the Word, through the distribution of the Word, through the prophet in the midst of Israel. Listen to question 156. I'm sorry, 160. So this is what is communicated. This is how these benefits are communicated. Listen to 160, which talks about how they're to be received. What is required of those who hear the word preached? This gets at the expectations that you should have as you come. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the Scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. So Christ possesses these benefits and he has appointed his word, the proclamation of his word as a means by which these benefits are conveyed to his people. That's what Elijah did in Israel. He said to the nation, come to me. And he spoke then to the nation. Now, what did he speak to the nation? Well, in a symbol, he spoke to them the gospel. He, he, he set the gospel before them. That's what this business of rebuilding the altar is all about. So in the first place, there is regard for the prophetic office okay, as, the, as a means by which God conveys the benefits which Christ has secured. But the second thing, there is regard for the substance of that message. And the substance of that message is the gospel. That's the heart of the thing. Uh, And that's what Elijah does in the midst of the nation. He rebuilds the altar. Now think, and and you see what he does here. First he rebuilds the altar. Uh, He puts all of the stones together. And then after he has rebuilt the altar, what does he do? Uh, He takes some animals. He slays the animals. He arranges those animals on the altar. Uh, All of that meant something to the nation Israel. Uh, it is a picture of the gospel. It is, it is the means by which the people are restored to fellowship with the God who has called them into fellowship with himself. Uh, that's what Elijah is doing in the midst of the nation. He, the, the, the altar has been torn down. The, the gospel, if you will, is in disrepair. And his ministry, and, and this is my ministry. You need to understand this about me. His ministry was a ministry of gospel repair. That is what he had been appointed to do. Repair the altar. Rebuild the altar. Represent before the people the means by which they would be restored to fellowship with God. Uh, That's what this altar is all about. Um, 
Paul uh, in the 20th chapter of Acts. Uh, if you remember that passage, as he meets with the Ephesian elders uh, before he leaves to go to Jerusalem, reminds them in verses 18 to 21 and verses 26 and 27, first, that he didn't withhold anything from them that would be for their benefit. And then in verses 26 and 27, um, he says to them that he is free of the blood of all men, uh, which means he, he is free from any accusation that could be brought against him for having failed to fulfill the functions of his office. He's not guilty. Why? Because he did not uh, hesitate to declare to them the whole counsel of God, everything that would be for their benefit and their profit. Okay? That's what Elijah did. Uh, it, was, it was not an easy thing for Elijah to do the work of repairing the altar, of setting before the nation the gospel, the unique gospel that God had entrusted to Israel. It was lonely business. He's surrounded by 450 prophets of Baal. He's the only prophet of Israel. There are also the prophets of, uh, of the Ashtoreth. He's a lonely voice in the midst of all of these other voices. Just as Paul, when he went to Athens and went so many places, was a lonely voice preaching the true gospel, setting before people the one true gospel, uh, understanding at some points that his life could be at stake. Elijah's life was at stake. He was hounded. He was harassed. But he knew what his function was. He knew he was the prophet in Israel, he knew that he'd been, he had been entrusted with this task of setting before the people the true gospel, repairing the altar so that the people could be restored to fellowship with God. That's what Paul understood his task to be. And he didn't shrink back from it. So uh, you see in Elijah's ministry this regard for the prophetic office. You see a regard for the substance of the prophetic message. It's the gospel rightly applied to a particular place in a particular time. But then there's this third thing. And just to keep with the, the alliteration, there is also for Elijah a proper regard for his own limitations. Regard for the prophetic office, regard for the substance of the prophetic message, and a regard for his own limitations. Uh, what do I mean by that? Where do you see that? Well, Elijah, after he had done everything that he knew to do, knew that what he had done was not enough. He was faithful. He fulfilled his office. He set the gospel before the people. And then after he set the gospel before the people, what did he do next? He prayed. I mean, I just love this image. Uh, what Elijah longed for was a singular display of the power of God. Uh, and he wanted it to be so evident and so clear in the minds of the people that God, the God of Israel, was the one true God that he saturated 
all of that wood saturated that altar with water so that there couldn't be any pyrotechnic tricks that could account for the fact that this fire consumed everything. But again, after he had done everything that he knew to do, fulfilling his office, setting the gospel before the nation, he knew his own limitations. And folks, he knew that if God didn't show up in power, nobody was going to be convinced. Nobody was going to be persuaded. Whenever it was back in the spring that I talked to you on that Sunday evening about the priority of the Lord's pattern prayer for us as a church, I had this stuff very much in mind. Um, I want to be faithful to my office here. Uh, I want to be faithful in setting the gospel before you and before this community. But my dear friends, if I don't pray and if you don't pray, this whole thing is so much noise. It will be an exercise in futility. And the offering will remain on the altar and the wood will still be doused with water and the water will fill the trench and there'll be no display of the glory of God. Uh, Elijah knew his limitations. Uh, Elijah knew uh, that if he did not take a step back and call upon the God of heaven and earth to come down in power and display his own glory, everything was just so much noise. So I'm, again, I'm, I'm in earnest about this business of prayer uh, for myself and for us. Um, I, I'll tell you, I love corporate worship and I love having times of prayer like this because I find my own faith gets encouraged. I may have mentioned this, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. My own faith gets encouraged as I listen to other people pray. There, there, there's something that happens in the community of faith when one person prayer, prays and incites another person to pray, which incites yet another person to pray. And there's this sort of contagious thing that goes on when people gather in settings like this and they pray. And more and more, that has got to be a feature of my life and of our life together as a congregation. Um, this is not about doing services right. This is not about um, properly articulating the tenets of our understanding of the teaching of Scripture. We've, we've got to do those things. We need to do services well. We need to encourage people in their worship. We need to speak and preach the Word of God as best we can. But there's got to be a habit among us, a mindset among us, that we take a step back after we've done everything we know to do and we plead with the God of heaven and earth that he would come down and baptize it all in fire so that his own glory might be displayed among us and before this community. 
in such a way that there will be no doubt that he is the one true God. That's what Elijah prayed. That God would visit them in such a way that everybody would know that he was God in Israel. So, I guess what I'm telling you as I stand before you this evening, I'm I'm telling you what I think my job is. My job is to seek to be the prophet in the midst of Israel. Only because God has called me to it. Not because I'm any different from anybody else. To be faithful in seeking to communicate the gospel in all of its fullness as best I can. But then you've got a job too. We have a job together in this. And that is to plead with God that he would come in power and baptize all of this, anoint all of this with fire so that there will be no question that he is God in the midst of Israel. So there is a regard uh, for the prophetic office There is a regard for the substance of the prophetic message. There is a proper regard for the prophetic limitation. Folks, I can't take the pressure of being responsible for making this church grow. I I can't handle that. It's crushing. I've been crushed by it. I've seen other men in the gospel ministry be crushed by it. The demand to make something grow that only God can make grow is a crushing pressure. And I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do the best I know to do. And I'm going to plead with you that we together plead with God that he would do something among us and through us that would bring glory to his name. That's what I see happening in 1 Kings 18. And then the fourth thing is an expectation. So the alliteration breaks down. But the fourth thing is an expectation of the display of God's power. Why shouldn't we expect that? Elijah did. He expected that God would hear his prayer. And he expected that God would come in power. He expected that God would would show that the worship of the Baals was bankrupt and empty and could not give life. He expected that God would come down and show Israel that he was the one true God. And why shouldn't we expect the same thing? I, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm the prophet in Israel, but I'm not the predictive prophet. Okay? I don't know what it's going to look like, but I I believe we should have every reason to expect as we acknowledge our own limitations and as we call upon God, I believe we have every reason to expect that God will come and display his power. Why? Because he wants for his name to be glorified. He wants for his name to be honored. He wants for his name to be exalted in all the earth. Why does he want for his name to be honored and exalted in all the earth? Because his name is worthy of being honored and exalted in all the earth. When you want your name to be honored and exalted in all the earth, that's a wrong-headed notion. Because 
your name is not worthy of praise and adoration and worship. But God's name is worthy of praise and adoration and worship. And it would be wrong for God not to want his name to be praised. It would be wrong for God not to want something to be honored that ought to be honored. And his name should be honored. So why wouldn't we expect that he would hear these cries and these pleas, that he come down in power and demonstrate his power and display his glory so that his name would be honored? I think we are right to expect that. Again, I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I, I want to tell you, I think, I think we're going to see people get converted. I think we are. I don't know who they are. I don't know when it's going to happen. But I think we're going to see it happen. Why? Because God wants for his name to be honored. I think we're going to see people's lives get straightened out. How come? Because God wants his name to be honored. Uh, again, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But I think we have every reason to expect, as Elijah did, that as we acknowledge our own limitations and call upon him to do what he alone can do, that he will hear those prayers and display his glory for the sake of his own name. Okay. So these four things are things that, um, that, re- that really do shape how I think about what I do day to day, week to week, month after month. But again, they shape not only what I think I ought to be doing, they shape what I think you ought to be doing and what we ought to be doing together. Okay? Okay, let me, let me pray for us, and um, I'll stick around for a little bit if you want to ask me anything or talk about this. I, we don't do Q&A things, uh, I guess. Maybe we should, but... Um, uh, let me pray for us, and, um, and I think we're going to sing, and uh, I'll stick around if you want to chat, okay? Let's pray. Lord, in our, more, in, our, in our more and most lucid moments, we know just how limited we are. Uh, we, we know just how little uh, there is for us to do, uh, but there is work for us to do. And we we ask you first that you would give us the ability to be faithful to what you call us to as a church. uh, Lord, may we be a prophetic voice in the midst of all of this confusion around us. Uh, May we set before this world the hope of the gospel. Uh, But Lord, may we be those who would call upon you to come down in our day just as you came down in the day of Elijah. Uh, And would you increase our faith to expect you to display your power in ways that will be alarming and surprising to us, but in ways that will bring glory to your name. Uh, We ask this uh, for the sake of Jesus, your son, that his cross might be lifted up and that he might be exalted in all the earth. In his name we pray. Amen. All righty. Let's sing together um, number 518. Christ of all my hopes, the ground. <laughs>